Welcome to the Palm Beach County Medical Society podcast series, MedTalk. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss, and we're having a conversation today about the ethical issues embedded in the opioid epidemic. We're speaking with bioethicist Dr. Ken Goodman, who's not only the director, but the founder of the Institute for Bioethics and Health Policy at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Medical ethics, which is basically a set of moral principles that helps us as physicians deliver the best care possible to our patients. When it comes to opioids, there's a lot of ethical quandaries. One of the most basic issues is we recognize those patients, those who are afflicted with opioid-related problems. We recognize it as a medical condition we call opioid use disorder. But it seems that the patients at all levels, we don't necessarily think of them as patients. We call them addicts. How does this whole concept fit in with the medical ethics model? And thank you for that. One of the things that I've learned over the years, and and I think this should be a source of encouragement and comfort to many physicians, when those of us who have the privilege of, for example, teaching ethics to medical students enjoy that privilege, what I try and signal as, as loudly and clearly as possible is this. Most of the standard values that are brought to bear have been, in some cases for many years, internal to the profession. Namely, they're values that physicians themselves have identified and elaborated. To be sure, no end of legislators and lawyers and boffins and and, and ethics programs who want to tell you what to do, but that's not exactly the best way to think of it. The best way, I think, is that these are values that are internal to the profession. The prescribing authority is a privilege that's granted by the state and that people need to have certain scientific knowledge in order to do it effectively. That's the beginning of the best way to try and resolve this challenge that we're facing, that North American society is facing. Is it fair to not call these individuals patients, but call them addicts, which, which clearly goes on on all levels of our healthcare system? What we've learned from our colleagues in behavioral medicine and substance abuse is that substance abuse is a medical problem. It may be that society also wants to call it a law enforcement problem. Maybe there are certain social challenges. But if you're a health professional, you know that the best way to identify it, to manage it, and to mitigate it is by using the tools that the biomedical science epithets like junkie and addict are actually, one, inaccurate, and two, not very helpful. And they're very pejorative. And that's one, one of the reasons why I'm so pleased that you're here. They reflect perhaps another level of what's going on that is more, I'm going to use political or cultural, but not medical as to what's going on with these folks. I recently have been looking at a lot of the history of the criminalization of addiction, and it was used for a multitude of reasons, bigger than we can get to today. But it's almost as if the ethics of our culture have allowed us to use more of a pejorative term than a medically descriptive term to discuss the addict. And have you seen that change over time? Are we becoming less likely to use, I'm going to use the term pejorative again, the pejorative approach, or have people pretty much started to understand that there's another issue here, lots of other issues here? Your thoughts? The inclination to find fault is is a human one. To frame it positively, we all have some responsibility for how we live our lives. On the other hand, if you're my doctor, your effectiveness, I, I think, is just not going to be increased by passing judgment on my bad habits. 
it may be substance abuse. Substance abuse, by the way, could include nicotine. Um, we, we have stigmatized uh, a fair number of people for a whole range of behaviors. Uh, they include diet. They include tobacco. They may include alcohol. They may include risky behaviors of various sorts. I mean, if I'm, if I'm driving like a lunatic on I-95, um, which, by the way, seems to be, a, 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 at least outside of a pandemic, uh, a, a, a recreational activity in South Florida, when I have an accident, I will be legally responsible. But as a matter of fact, you as my doctor, holding that against me in some sort of way, I think is not part of traditional medical teaching. Nevertheless, it's a human inclination. You did this. You took this drug. You behaved in this way. And therefore, you bear responsibility for illness, even if that's true. And I think in many cases, what we've learned about the social determinants of disease is probably not true. But even if it is, it's not medically very effective. We shame people who can't keep a diet. And yet, as my colleagues here sometimes point out, I, I don't mean to make light of it, so I, I have to attribute this to someone else. But try and find fresh fruit and vegetables in Little Havana or Overtown in Miami, anyway, the Hispanic and black neighborhoods. Whole Foods does not exist in some places. And so if you want to blame me for my diet or my reliance on foods, for example, that are high in carbs and salt and that sort of thing, then that may be something that will help guide you. I suspect it won't. Your question, what trends am I noticing? I'm noticing pretty much stasis in our human inclination to find fault with others' behaviors, even though that's not medically very effective. Which takes us into a related area. We're talking about disparities in health care. What about the fact that this opioid epidemic became a problem when it moved out of the black community? There were trouble in those areas for years, but it was never something that the medical profession took much interest in. When it became a white middle class problem, suddenly. One of the largest and most both important and dispiriting uh, facts of all, white People are used to living a certain sort of way, and whether it's drugs or crime, there's a tradition, a history, an inclination to not worry about it until it's your kids. Drugs have been a problem in the black community for centuries. You've identified the fact that when white people started doing it, and then suddenly we had a pandemic, we've always had health problems, non-trivial expensive health problems that have impeded society, ruined the economy, destroyed lives. We just, if we're white and live in our shelters, didn't see them. So it raises the question as well, and I reinforce your, your comments of what, two, three, four years ago, HBO did a huge thing on the opioid crisis in Cape Cod. And it was 99%, I don't know if it was 100%, but it was 99% white guys, white girls, who never really had a career. And so the ethics of not talking about this disparity is troubling because it leaves a gap in trying to eventually, hopefully, reach a cure or a mitigator or something that can stop it. So it's, it's, it's almost an ethical choice. Now, maybe that's too strong, but I'll ask it that way. Was it an ethical choice on the part of society not to discuss it? How do you bring ethics into this? So one of, the, one of the things that I try and do in possible is, is try to identify those baseline values that are utterly uncontroversial, that no one could possibly disagree with. There are a few of them. Transparency. We have not been transparent about this problem. We haven't been transparent at the level of law enforcement, at the level of public policy, at the level of legislatures, and we've just dropped the ball. Veracity. Truth-telling. Tell the truth. 
We're used to, especially in the current political environment, people in power fail to be transparent and to lie, or at least deceive us. Remember, I can deceive you without lying to you. I can withhold facts. I can release only a few facts, that sort of thing, right? And then there's accountability and responsibility. And what you've identified is a question, I would say, it's a failure of ethics and public policy. We have not done a very good job, but it's not the only thing we haven't done a good job with. We don't provide good programs for rehabilitation. Every social problem that contributes to crime is one that could have been fixed years ago by legislatures that would not have permitted discrimination, not have permitted ripping off people in the business world, not have permitted the exploitation of people based, based on social class or race. Every one of those is an ethical failure of the first order. When it comes to opioids and other kinds of substance abuse, we weren't transparent, we didn't tell the truth, and responsibility, as you pointed out, as both of you pointed out, seems to be turfed to the victims of the problem, namely those substance abusers whose lives are being destroyed. In part, by the way, by industry. Purdue Pharma made a nice penny, thank you very much, by destroying people's lives. That was the business model. And somehow or other, we turned away, we didn't dig, we didn't ask, and we allowed, we collectively as society, allowed this problem to get out of hand. And the extension of that, which complicates it, is the fact that we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And I don't know what the exact statistic is, but Statistically, a very large number of the people who have the virus have or are likely to have an opioid problem, given just the general statistics. I don't have the hard numbers. And yet we're not talking about the overlaps and how to prioritize things, how to triage treatments. It must be causing ethical reverberations are very difficult because I could see that someone is treated or not treated because of the policy of a particular triage. Do they overlap? Do they not overlap? How do we delineate? So that is a very important and thank you very much, very difficult question. We've discovered, those of us who are trying, for example, to work on allocation guidelines for scarce resources during the pandemic, have discovered a lot of things. We've discovered that without anybody necessarily being a racist, we have racism based into our system, baked into our system, by which I mean, even though no individual in any hospital is necessarily a racist, the criteria, the algorithms that we use are based on populations that have been selected, have already had access to care. We spent a lot of time with Dr. Schillinger about working with the disability community, which is concerned that some of our guidelines discriminate against people with disabilities. Now, we've tried to address that, but if you already have a substance abuse problem, then what I'd love to see more research on are the ways in which that medical condition ends up causing other collateral damage in the context of the, of the virus. I would not be surprised to have people who study. It's, it's an intersection of lots of different specialties, but one of them is going to be sociology, right? And it's going to be how is it that we've managed to find yet a new way to make the lives of people with substance abuse worse? What I want to say is all of these questions that, that you're asking one, are spot on, and two, require more research. Parenthetically, the best thing that's going to come out of all of this is that those people who thought their only duty as a citizen was to vote for tax cuts may discover that really what we want to do in civil society is have a far more robust biomedical research enterprise, especially when it comes to public health. We will be able to answer your questions if we had more data. One of the things, and this goes back to my training, when people would come into the emergency room, say with a heart attack, and they also had a substance abuse problem, and somehow the way it was labeled was, here's Mr. Smith, 
a opiate abuser addict who has a heart attack. It sets the scene in advance in terms of what we're going to look at. And so our people, and I don't know the answer to this, our people, when they go into the emergency rooms being saying, this is an addict with COVID, are we seeing that in terms of labeling? Because that's a big ethical thing. I do not think we're seeing it yet, in part because how one makes that determination in the first place is kind of tricky. Depending on how you end up in the ER or, or the ICU, for that matter, you might not know that. You've identified a broader and more systemic problem. And that's how you label patients with their maladies. And when you use words like addict, you've lost something very precious. When you were trained, somebody somewhere might have said to you, no, the proper stance to this is Oslerian. William Osler said, the job of a physician here is equanimity. It's grace under pressure. It's not finger wagging or fist clenching. Your patients all have problems. Some of them are going to be embarrassing. Some of them are going to be socially stigmatizing. But your job, and collectively our, our health system's job, is not to make it worse. And you've identified cases where people are tempted to make it worse because it's a handy label. We do it with, with drugs. We do it with alcohol. We do it with smoking. We do it with food. It's, it's the introduction of facts as if they were clinically significant when they might not. So I think we can agree that as a group, physicians are held to pretty high standards for good reason, because amongst groups, they have pretty high level of ethics, bioethics, medical ethics, ethics in general. But yet they've been manipulated by many outside forces. You alluded before to the pharmaceutical industry. I know there's some examples, even in the medical record, EMR industry, where physicians have been just manipulated. How did that happen? So that's a great question. Part of it, it, it is, despite what you said, it is still rumored that physicians are human. What that means is they are beguilable, they are incentivizable. And in principle, although I think you're right, I think it may happen less than perhaps other uh, populations, in part by virtue of education, they are some of them. And I know this is a minority, but, but some of them are corrupt. One of the things, for example, how does it happen? If you look at drug company data, about advertising, for example, or incentives, they can show you data that they, with enough of a budget, can alter the prescribing behavior of enough physicians for them to make sure that their 17-year-old patent will make them a lot of money, right? You start in places where there are residents. You get them used to prescribing a drug. And the drug might just very well be fine. I mean, suppose you're the attending, Dr. Schillinger, and Dr. Strauss and I are the interns. Well, if you, we see you prescribing it, we get used to the drug's profile early on, then we're going to be comfortable with it and we're going to prescribe it. Now, if, if Jane over here uh, ends up being the drug rep, she knows that the way to build that is to expose us to it as early as possible. And that can be done without bribes, without fancy meals, without trips to the islands. It can be done simply by getting there ahead of the competition. And being human, we're going to say, look, I know this. Uh, I've actually read enough of the literature to know that it, uh, it that, that it's a distinction without a difference. Two drugs have similar profiles. I know this one a little better. I'm going to do what I know. And so we've managed to alter market share by virtue of, of lobbying, as it were. And you add to that gifts. You add to that the other kinds of incentives, which have led to legal, uh, to, to online registries about who's being paid what by pharma. And you'll see that some of this was self-inflicted. Fortunately, our students, I mean, at my institution, the University of Miami students said that they have participated robustly in these medical student scorecards, namely, what is your institution doing to prevent that kind of 
of inappropriate incentivizing. And as a result, my institution, University of Miami School of Medicine, the Miller School has, has changed its policy over the past decade. Community is somewhat different. I have in my office a box of doodads given out by drug companies as gifts to physicians. It ranges from bags of labeled M&Ms. You know the batons they use at the Olympics, the aluminum tubes? This gift was an Olympic running baton with the name of a drug on it. So they could support the uh, transition of care advertisement. Passing the baton, you need drug alpha, beta, gamma. But they actually had Olympic running batons made with the drug company logo on them. Now, we all know that overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, most physicians are, are not influenced by that kind of silliness. But most of them don't need to be. Just enough of them do. And that's the way it works. That, that, if I come to you saying, I've lost my Oxycontin prescription, I'm about to go on a cruise, and so I need 250, and I do that twice in a month, and you write that script, I don't think we need to do much of much of an assay to figure out you, someone's made a mistake here. If I've got renal lithiasis, or I've got migraine, or I've got back pain, or whatever, and I drive up and down the causeway, I'm, I'm going to be able to find hospitals that say, just get out of here. We have actually patients we need to take care of. And we haven't got the time to find out whether you're, whether you're malingering or not. So part of this has been willingness to be deceived. Part of it has been human nature. That we are having this conversation now to make it a positive point is an example of the medical profession rising to the occasion when it needs to, to undertake a course correction. And what the Palm Beach County Medical Society is doing with this, with this series is another example of the profession itself putting its house in order. You said University of Miami now is not allowing the reps to come in. I've been involved in running residency programs in my specialty in dermatology. I kind of took a different perspective. I said, bring the reps in, but I want to teach the students and the residents how to be resilient. Because if you don't have that exposure during your training, the first day in private practice, you're going to think, oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Culture's changing. I mean, the, that argument is the idea that you're not going to be practicing in a hospital for the rest of your life. You're going to be in practice somewhere else. And if you don't know how these drug reps, oh, by the way, I'm going to choose my next words carefully. They are paid to deceive you. When they tell you the truth about their drug, they're not telling you the truth about the competing drug. That is their business model. Their job is to beguile physicians. They're not evil people. It's their business. I know what they're supposed to do. But we want physicians to be adequately empowered. If you're right, that's one approach. I'm of the view that if you know they're deceiving you, I mean, it's a great debate to have. You know, it's a terrible question. Do you need to, to witness someone trying to deceive you in order to be educated about how not to be deceived? And the answer is maybe that works. I mean, it's a terrible question, Dr. Schilder. I, I, I don't have clear thoughts about that. What I do know is that lifelong learning and continuing medical education is among the ways that you stay up on practice without having to rely on people who have a financial interest in your prescribing. We want this to be evidence-based and uncorrupted. Every drug launch and every steakhouse presentation is not a lie, but it's all part of a very large network to build market share. If you found out your stockbroker was doing the same thing, you might worry a little bit about whether she was giving advice based on what on stocks or based on what kind of incentives she's been offered. In any case, the culture has changed, and I'm not sure at the end of the day, when this, when this moves down to the level of individual practices, medical schools have changed. 
whether or not individual practices have is a great question and something that I think we should spend some more time looking into. One of the problems for the vast majority of physicians is that we are in private practice. We don't have access to grand rounds. Sometimes we don't see another physician for weeks on end. And we are dependent on the drug reps to bring us samples, information about a new drug, and the like. That becomes a quandary because they are actually there to educate on the surface but make the profit right under the surface. And that's fine. That's their business. The ethics of this, I think, exploded when we got into issues of the fifth vital sign, what is the ethical relationship to a doctor who has legitimate pain, not the ones who are the addicts. They're, they're actually two very different categories. Sometimes they overlap, to be sure, but essentially two different categories. And it is complicated for many physicians the ethical challenge of how to approach pain management. And, and we, don't, we, we just don't have enough tools to really do this the way I would like to if we were in an academic pain management center with all the associated resources. Again, I, I love you hearing your thoughts, your thoughts on what's happening in the world, the ethical world of pain management these days. One of the challenges we face, and it also is the origin, by the way, of pain as a vital sign. We have traditionally, and this is actually an indication, of most physicians caution regarding, regarding opioids but if I've got end-stage cancer, some sort of bone cancer, let's imagine I'm going to be in a lot of pain. And we have seen over the years reluctance to prescribe adequate doses for that pain. Florida's end-of-life statute has very solid language saying if you have a patient who's in pain, certainly a patient who's dying and in pain, don't under-treat her. In other words, titrate to effect. Use your prescribing authority to make your patient as comfortable as possible. And since we didn't do a very good job with that, especially at the end of life, it became a move among nurses to try and make pain a vital sign. It was just not inherently malign. Collateral damage now, my fear, is that we might, again, be under-treating people with serious pain because it involves the use of opioids, right? Opioids are appropriate in certain circumstances, and getting that right can be really quite tricky. There was traditional reluctance to prescribe opioids. You got to keep in mind, anybody who says, makes what seems to be an observation about the medical profession is making a mistake, by which I mean there is so much variation in prescribing behavior, in the way different people manage this sort of thing, the way they approach end-of-life care, in the way they're willing to trust the patient, in the way they're willing to be, to be incentivized. We have a whole lot of doctors, and they are no more homogenous than any other population. They may be better educated. They may, by virtue of professional education, have higher standards for integrity. I believe overwhelmingly they do. But they're not the ones who cause the problem, right? And so, and so we've got a situation where anything that seems to wash across the entire profession is by definition going to be inapt and inaccurate. The vital sign was a clumsy attempt to treat legitimate pain better. I believe it may have had a collateral and unintended consequence. Well, there's so many ethical issues in this opioid arena. What can we do to help physicians traverse through this minefield? I like it when, when Oslerian physicians take a role in public policy. But I do think, and this is why organizations like American College of Physicians can be so powerful in helping to guide practice and empower physicians. 
if it's the case that there's no other way for somebody in practice to be educated about the latest drugs and research than by having somebody who has an interest in your prescribing behavior, then let's do what Palm Beach County Medical Society has done for years. Namely, let's let's broaden our CME uh, efforts by the by professional society. Let's have physicians themselves take responsibility for their own education. I think one teaching, we all know the, the origin of the word doctor is in fact teacher um, uh, in Latin. And and when you see doctors as teachers of their peers, you see something beautiful happening. I think that the first, the most important thing we can do is more education about how to educate, more teaching doctors to doctor, which I mean teaching doctors to teach. The sums of money we're talking about would be perfectly available if we wanted to, to provide them. I do not think that the pharmaceutical industry is the only way to pay for continuing medical education. I think there are other ways of doing it as well. And by the way, I don't mind them paying for it at conferences where there's review of evidence-based presentations and that sort of thing. That's the way we've, we've done this. I don't think that it's inherently wrong for business to advertise as long as the people to whom you're advertising have all arrows in their quiver to know when they're being hustled. And as long as we've got filters and we've built better filters, make sure an independent review committee is looking at talks based on evidence. When you get your slide deck from the company, does that slide deck pass evidence-based medicine muster? If it does, no problem, but at least somebody externally reads it. That gives most people a comfort level. It's a physician heal thyself sort of entreaty. I think that the values that we teach our students, that we say are signaled over thousands of years of professional education, prestige, and, and high social work, are precisely among the tools that we want to be able to celebrate when it comes to addressing a problem that some few physicians have made worse. And I think that the future is bright when physicians do precisely that. Thank you so much, Dr. Ken Goodman, for joining us today. I believe for sure we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in this ethics and opioids dilemma. It's been a great start. It's been a great conversation. Indeed it has. Thank you, sir.